Losing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. This week, Dave and I are joined by Norwegian composer, performer, vocalist extraordinaire, Maya Ratke. Welcome, Maya. Where are you today? I'm at my home in Svartskog. It's outside of Oslo. It's uh, really nice weather outside, but I'm sitting in my basement where I have my studio. (laughs) It's really great to see you. It's great to meet you, finally. And um, I hope you have some windows there that can look out onto some landscape. Yeah, I definitely want to get out uh, during the day. But actually, now it's too hot. It's not supposed to be that hot uh, at this time of the year. But uh, I I don't like it when it's too hot. I'm a very typical Norwegian uh, inhabitant. I enjoy skiing and being out in the rain and stuff like that. We we normally start these these conversations, uh, Maya, with with um, the question: do, do you remember in your life the first piece of music that made you go wow? Was it as a child, you know, on the radio or or, or when wherever? Do you remember that experience and and what the piece was? I do remember being completely intrigued by music and sounds in general. Since I was really young, I used to imitate sounds that I heard around me, but I didn't consider it as music, like uh, bird sounds or uh, machines or voices, languages that I didn't understand, etc. So there is no strong memory of one uh, piece from my childhood. But I do have that experience when, uh, when I grew older, and this is when I decided to become a composer. It was my meeting with contemporary music. I was... uh, like born in a regular <laughs> condition where I didn't meet much contemporary music. Mm. I mean, I grew up playing the violin and after a while piano and I was singing in musicals and stuff. But when I heard uh, the music by the Norwegian composer Arne Nordheim, which I heard when I was much late, as older, uh, 19 years old, that struck me as, uh, as so alive and so relevant and so moving. It really got a grip on me. I had heard about Arne Nordheim. Everyone has heard about Arne Nordheim. When you grew up in the media world with only one channel, like we have common references in our society. Uh, and I was uh, full of this uh, common prejudices that it was uh, just, uh, you know, contemporary music, like pling-plong music, we called it. <laughs> but what I heard was very far from that. And at this moment, I, I thought, I, I also want to be a part of this. I also want to be a part of where music is happening now and that you can actually use classical music to to say something about the lives that we are living now in our time. And uh, it struck me as completely irrelevant and it was uh, an aesthetic and emotional experience. Was that a live performance or was it a a record? It was a live performance at uh, the Oslo Philharmonic. I was then at uh, a school a bit uh, north of Oslo and 
and the whole school went to Oslo to go to a concert. It was the first time I went to listen to a concert by the Oslo Philharmonic, and they had a program where they played a piece by Arne William also. Yeah. Were, 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 were you from a musical family? I'm, I'm from a, a musical family in the sense that yeah, my grandfather, he was a violin player. He was also a lot of other things. He, he was selling paint and he was a fisherman and <laughs> lots of things. And then my father is an amateur violinist and conductor. I was, I was, I grew up with music, but uh, you know, not in an art <laughs> way. Yeah. There's a there's a lovely picture. I was I was looking through your website um, be, before this this um, this this podcast recording. And there's a lovely picture of you as a little girl. I th- I'm, I'm, sure, I'm assuming it's you. And there's an older man with white hair and he's making something and you are watching him. And it looks like you've been disturbed from watching him by the photographer. And you're looking up, almost telling off the camera because you're busy making something. W- was that you? And, and do you remember what you were making? Yeah, I put up some uh, childhood pictures on my website just to give an impression of what it's like uh, growing mm. up in Norway in the 70s. It's probably my grandfather. I I think uh, I remember which one it is. Where he's probably sharpening an axe. Ah, no, that's it was a handle. Wow, he's sharpening an axe. <laughs> yeah, because I thought <laughs> he was making maybe stone. like a hockey stick or something. But yes, that makes yeah, sense. It is a grinding stone. So that yeah. was my other grandfather, not the one that is uh, was ah. a musician. But yeah, so oh, wonderful. I, this was <laughs> typical Norwegian countryside behavior. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned on the Nordheim. I had uh, his music first at the same place I first heard your music, which was the Huddersfield Festival. And the piece of his was a piece for, um, what was it, oboe and chamber ensemble, I think called Boomerang? For oboe and ensemble, and yours was a big vocal piece. 2012, maybe? Oh, I wonder if it was the accordion concerto you heard, Arnurem, at that uh, same concert? Yes, that's right, that as well. Yeah, because yeah, yeah the accordion concerto is really great. And mm. it's uh, it was actually my husband who played the accordion. In no that way! Concert, <laughs> through the half clay. <laughs> through the half yeah. playing a lot of uh, Scandinavian uh, contemporary music. And I remember mm. that we went to, went to that concert with the Scottish BBC Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, yeah, that was it. And, and was prior to that, hmm. yeah, and about ten years before, I'd heard Arne's um, Boomerang. So it's interesting that all these worlds somehow collide on the platform, isn't it? Very nice. That's wonderful. You studied at the Norwegian Academy of Music, and knowing your work as a performer and vocalist and composer. I guess at the time, your ambition didn't necessarily fit into the traditional models of composition training. Um, how did it go for you at the academy? Uh, I wasn't aware of that when I started to study composition. Mm. As I said, my meeting with contemporary music, uh, it was so intense and so strong. And I decided to become a composer and I had no idea who were studying composition and what the teachers were. And I didn't know of any other living composers. And uh, but I I learned the existence of the music academy and that this mm. is the place to study composition in Norway. So I worked hard for two years and I took a lot of uh, private lessons as well and studied scores. Mm. I lived at a li- library, listening through the history of contemporary music, and uh, I just absorbed as much as I could. Besides having like day jobs in order to get some income, 
So I worked mm. with the papers and worked in restaurants, and I worked also as a roadie for a for a, an ensemble. But uh, I got to get to a lot of concerts when I moved to Oslo then. And this was my <laughs> my um, my own graduation. And but then when I entered the music academy, it struck me well that it was very rare to be a performer also at mm. that time to study composition. And this was uh, necessary for me also. I wanted to express myself both through yeah. composing and and through being on stage myself. It's um, it's something I, I needed. It's nurturing the composition process to be or in to be in that position when you feel when the music is happening in real time in front mm. of an audience and what what that musical time is, which is something different from when you sit outside of time and plan the piece. So this is experience is so valuable. Mm. And, uh, I also wanted to start with free improvisation with this group, which is called Spunk, it's consisting of four female composers in Norway. So we have played since uh, we met as students in 95, and we still play. Mm. And uh, this wasn't a part of the official program uh, studying mm. composition. So um, I felt that I wasn't, uh, you know, a full, I wasn't 100% there at the yeah. <laughs> as a composer student. I did uh, 50% of other things as well. Yeah. So this and is also why I decided not to go on with the with the study. So I only finished mm. uh, the bachelor degree. Okay, I see, and I think that and I suppose, in a sense, you were more rebellious than the course was uh, offering for you. And I think, in terms of notating music, had you experience of writing music down prior going to the academy, and, and what was the first piece of music you wrote for other people to perform? For other people to perform, well, I wrote a lot of pieces for myself playing the piano when I was small. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And then, yeah, I, I didn't um, uh, collect it properly and uh, it's lost in history, but I found, found an old diary with titles and I remember mm. some of them regularly. Um, but uh, later on, uh, when I started to perform musicals, I was also uh, uh, in a position where I could write uh, music for new musicals mm. when I when I was in high school so I did a couple of those also when I'm leading the band and yeah and also having written most of the music that was really really fun so that must be the, like the first official compositions that I made for others how fantastic it was that real sort of glitzy musical theater or was it a darker version of musicals oh no this is was this was before i um, was uh, faced with contemporary art so uh, this is uh, this was completely in the land of uh, musical uh, fantastic <laughs> and everything and i loved it <laughs> yeah absolutely and um when did you decide to make music your career this was after uh, deciding to becoming a composer hmm? And uh, I had no idea if that would be possible. And it was not something that my family recommended to me. Mm. <laughs> Definitely not. And I, it was not in the initial plan either. Uh, I didn't study art uh, before. So um, I had ambitions of maybe going into engineering or also becoming something at the university. But mm-hmm. My mother is also a professor at the uh, Technical uh, University in Trondheim, which is uh, really well known. So she is uh, quite famous there. And uh, we have a really great relationship now. But I, I think it was something that she would take for granted as well, that I would uh, go in that uh, mm. direction. But to me, that would be, you know, it's 
the riskiness of, of creating art, so, so creating something that you can't put uh, two lines under, there is no yeah. correct answer to it. This, um, this was much more uh, crucial to, to what I wanted to work with, like uh, to have something which is not, uh, it's not uh, possible to measure it in the mm. same way as, uh, as with science then. And There's a sort of experimental nature to both, isn't there? And, and particularly... I'm interested in your work. There's, there's composing, which 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 is making something out of nothing. But then you also do improvisational work, experimental improvisational work. As somebody who, when I was growing up, I stuff, suffered from stage fright. So the thought of going on a stage anyway was terrifying. Mm. But to go onto a stage and improvise with, you know, nothing to rely on, how scary is that? And and it sounds exhausting. Yeah, uh, it is. <laughs> you can sometimes compare it to extreme sports because there's like absolutely no safety net. If you really want to do a proper improvisation where you don't have any like sketches or plans for the form at all. But you still have a lot of frames. The instrument is a frame and the circumstances, the room that you are in and the expected length that you are supposed to perform. It's a lot of frames already. But you um, but uh, as an improvising musician, you have learned a lot already. You have a vocabulary and you have a trained instrument. You have so much there that the work is already, uh, it's not done, but it's it's been going on for so many years. So uh, it's not like starting from scratch. You, you know that you have something there. And to refine that instrument and the, to refine that expression when you meet the audience, um, so in that position, you need to be very, very concentrated. Like, I can't imagine like sitting on the top of a ski jump. It, yeah, you can't think of anything else uh, to to justify the the situation. I mean, not to justify it, but um, uh, in respect to the situation and to the audience. And this is also the the only place to be if you don't want to just deliver something that you. Uh, already know that you can, but you in improvisation the the happiest moments are when you actually realize that you're creating something new or putting putting your uh, uh, material together in new ways, which is uh, the the beauty of it that it's still possible to say something new. How do you feel just before you go on stage? Do you I try to be as focused. Yeah, yeah. I try to be as focused as possible. So um, I don't regularly talk a lot before or mingle with people. It's um, it's uh, it's like a process or a meditation, and just warming up a bit uh, helps. It's it's the same with classical musicians as well. It's, uh, you need to be extremely focused. It's really demanding what you're going to go through, and uh, and it's so challenging, and it's so uh, fun. <laughs> it's so and it's so risky. So you know, it needs your full attention. And this this concentration is so valuable in life also. And uh, I hope that everyone can find a way to 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 know to get knowledge to this concentration in in a way because it's it's so easy to get distractions everywhere now. And I think we need it in any kind of work that we do, or just attention to the nature or the people around us. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, focus is all really purpose is all as well, right? You know, what are we, why are we doing what we're doing? Um, I was just perusing a lot of your catalogue recently, and you've written in many genres, haven't you, from, you know, chamber to opera to film to theatre, etc., immersive work. How do you balance 
um, writing something for yourself or creating something for yourself with Spunk or with Boeing or, and then a straight commission for orchestra, for example. How does that jive with you? It's easy to answer that because um, <laughs> when I'm spending time working, it's with writing. Mm. So I'm not spending that much time rehearsing mm. anymore. I have rehearsed a lot, but when I do concerts, it's already based on something that I already know how to do yeah. most of the time, even though I try to challenge it. Mm-hmm. But uh, what really takes a long time is to compose so on the outside, it looks like I'm doing, uh, as I said, I'm doing in, in, in evil, uh, even um, uh, balance of of those things, performing and composing. But it's uh, really something different. And when I compose for myself, when I use my own voice, I don't write down what I'm going to do because it's right. not necessary. I learn if it's something that is specified or it needs to be repeated in the same way. I just learn it by heart. For example, when I made music for the National Ballet, for mm. the performance Sult or Hunger, yeah. taken from uh, Hamsen's novel, um, it was all composed through the entire piece and I was playing all the instruments and vocalizing, but I haven't written down anything. I just learned everything by heart. And then and the for this, you need to be like super precise because it's actually a national ballet dancing. <laughs> yes. A full evening, so a full act, a one actor. And if you miss out the bar, then they are going to mess up, you know. <laughs> but uh, that went really well. And I think why, why uh, that is a better, like, no, I, did, I don't need to because then it would, it would just be a, a time consuming and it's a waste because I would anyhow need to learn it by heart. And uh, it's a better way to manifest the music in the body in that in in that uh, way of working mm. when you are performing yourself. Also, um, I'm into the um, local amateur folk music scene in Norway. Uh, I'm leading uh, an ensemble with the uh, fiddle players and uh, accordion, guitar, bass, etc. We play uh, folk music. And we don't use uh, anything written down. We just learn by heart. We find some archive material and sometimes also notes, but then we then we uh, learn it by heart or I teach it to the to the people playing there. And it's a bunch of kids also. So it's it's young people and and their parents who just picked up the violin for the first time. So it's all levels. The kids are really good. They're much better than me. But, so I need to give them challenges on all levels. It's very fun. So we're going to play concerts with this now, tomorrow and on Sunday, actually. What, 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 what do you play? I play violin. Yeah. So I grew up playing classical violin, but I put it away. But then I started again when I got uh, kids because they started to play violin and I started to play with them. <laughs> they didn't have me as a teacher only the first year, but I rehearsed together with them for many years. In the beginnings, I got better again. And I, but then I started to play folk music and... And they also moved into that, but they still play classical music, um, my daughters, on a really high level. So they are now in this orchestra thing, but (laughs) I'm not able to follow them there.
where do your motivations or your inspirations to make music come from? Oh, this is a, it's a very hard question, of course, and a question that I often get. Um, because it seems like um, also <laughs> ideas, they don't come easily, but um, I need to uh, put myself in a position where ideas can come. And how do you do that? I mean, what do you what do you have to avoid in order not to not to cut that uh, flow? If you can look at it that way, and it's uh, it's about uh, caring for for uh, your situation, so you're not so much uh, no <laughs> split up. Mm-hmm. Talking about this concentration and this uh, all the disturbances that we have, and but I'm thinking been thinking about this since uh, I was a student and we didn't have social media and all that also that how important it is to to put yourself in a situation where inspiration can happen and inspiration can happen at any time and and you also need to to get that skill to to craft it because you can get an idea but it's not the same as like uh, knowing what to do with it and I also like to collaborate with others which is also always super inspiring. And being lucky enough to, to do that, collaborating with artists in other fields has always meant a lot to me. And do you, do you sort of have a regular routine for writing to, to, to make yourself available for what inspiration comes? Do you, do, you, do you work in the same place at the same time or are you able to um, do that? Not at all, because uh, as a freelancer, uh, uh, the routine is all split up. I feel very uh, sad if I'm not uh, able to write. <laughs> if I have too much obligations with other things, then uh, then I feel like a really strong, like a longing to sit down and create and compose. And uh, you can say that, okay, when COVID happened, then I would be super happy. But no, that wasn't the case either, because then I just longed for concerts. So much that I got, that was a distraction. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard to concentrate when you didn't know what was going to be the future of the concert situation. So I also felt how meaningful music is as a platform for humans, human interaction and communication. Really felt that how strong it is. The, the need we have for concerts is something that will never go out of fashion, no matter how like a good technology we will have because uh, we need to actually meet other humans and to be in the same room where something is at stake when someone is playing for you. That is one of the most beautiful things that can happen that someone is actually giving you something, giving you art through music. It's not about if you like it or not. It's about the situation that you appreciate the situation. And I really appreciate that situation so much that someone is playing for me. I could go to any concert and just feel like I'm getting a gift. Mm. And uh, I think this is so grounded in us as humans that it must have been something that came together with language in the in the first place. That is uh, something we recognize as humans uh, across each culture or platform or background. So these, the concerts are so valuable and that, that will never grow out of fashion. <laughs> That's my... It may even be before language. You know, it may have come before language music. Yeah, or together um, with language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, during um, COVID, I didn't go to any concerts for about nine months. And then 
I went to, I managed, in the UK, they allowed us to go on holiday for about four weeks and we managed to book a flight to the south of France and we, there was an outdoor concert and it was an absolutely terrible French pop, like terrible. And I'd had a couple of drinks, the weather was lovely, there were people sitting, you know, two pieces apart, but this person played this terrible music and I just cried I just I physically reacted to hearing music. I was so grateful. Not just hearing, exactly but experiencing mean. that is happening yeah. now and we are sharing this space. We're in it together. It's not uh, only the musicians that are giving you something, but you are giving something back to them as well. And then you feel that. You feel that you are in the same space, that you are. everyone sharing this space is responsible for the situation. And this is something we easily forget when we work with big orchestras and such. But it's so clear when you, you work with uh, other kinds of music or smaller smaller venues or folk music or improvisation. I remember also playing uh, with the with the Spelman Slug. This is a folk music local folk music band that we have here during COVID when we weren't allowed to do any other concerts and we played outdoors a couple of times in a place where elderly people lived, like a caring uh, institution. Yeah, and we played in the yard, and they were sitting on the balconies. Oh, lovely! And that was it was nice. so yeah. uh, so nice. It was so nice, and we were, uh, yeah, they were so happy, and we were so happy, and <laughs> you know, see how meaningful music is. I think I think the reason one of the reasons it affected me so much was, I think I thought maybe you'd never hear a concert again. Mm. You know, it, it felt like that. Yeah, I did, and that mm. that made me. Uh, it, it was difficult to concentrate. That made me mm. so vulnerable also because this my whole life is about trying to achieve those moments that you share something and I want to contribute to that. Yeah. When that is taken away from you, you feel so, yeah, it, you really feel how much it means to you. I was, I've been thinking a lot recently. I, um, you know, we worked closely with, I think it's the first time I'm ever going to say this, the late Kaya Sariaho, mm. um, who also was one of the first pe- women, if you like, to work at IRCAM, and you did the same. Could you tell us about IRCAM? Because I think people listening would be see this sort of an acronym, but never really know what it is. Can you tell us a bit about that? I don't um, know what it is, actually. Yeah. I only took a summer course there once. Yeah. And uh, it's the Institute for Electronic Music in the, in Paris. Uh, which, which was um, um, so the nesting place of Boulez. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> and a lot of great music has uh, come out of, uh, of this institution. And uh, I took a summer course there once because I've um, been working with technology all the time. And, mm. and uh, I was excited to, to just get some input. And uh, Kaya Sadio, I think, was the only woman there giving uh, lectures when I was there. Wow. So to me, that was very inspiring. And she was so straightforward. She would just say, like, from her heart, what things would mean, like, musically, and not to be too much uh, entangled in technolo- technology terms. And yeah. uh, she would also, in a way, then uh, point out what was important with music, that we don't lose that out of sight when we work with technology. Mm. But also to me, like, to, to meet a female composer also at the point where I hadn't met many female composers. Uh, mm. All the teachers at the Music Academy were also male. 
Uh, that was also just seeing her and talking with her. That was a huge inspiration. And she was very supportive. And mm. she she was very strong and vulnerable at the same time. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, the whole, I think when you were dealing with this part of your compositional career and she was a little bit step ahead, you know, there were few role models working in this way, weren't there? Yeah, after a while, of course, I would uh, meet others. Sofia Gubaidulina came by yeah, Oslo yeah. once and visited the Music Academy, and that was also very inspiring, even though she is further away from me aesthetically than Kaya Sadio, perhaps. But there are also other great female composers in Norway that have mm. been before me. For example, uh, Cecilia Ure and Sinus Gauen, Ose Hjelström. Uh, and now there are uh, many more I think yeah. uh, the balance now between uh, female and male composers in society of composers is about 2080, which is okay. the highest that it's ever been. I say, remember, just remembered, I visited Oslo a long, long time ago with Rolf Valin, uh, another Norwegian composer, and we visited an electronic studio as part of the university there's an institution there what would what was that called mm. now that's NOTAM the Norwegian Institute that's for it. Technology yeah. and uh, I've been working there uh, a lot also mm. because they would have technology that the music academy didn't so you can say that NOTAM is the Norwegian IRCOM yeah exactly <laughs> I'm sorry I just remembered that just then NOTAM and it was like going into another world Dave you know there's all these sort of quite boffiny people uh you know making these extraordinary sounds from either real sounds of music or creating an artificial ex ex electronic landscape it was yeah, like yeah. going into a magic box yeah totally and I, when I took uh, some classes there and I just started to work there and I made music out of DNA molecules and things like mm. that and it was very fun <laughs> and I've been uh, been coming back to Nutam to do bigger projects that I can't do here and they have shown me great support the last big project I did in collaboration with Nutam is a is a sound installation which is mm. placed uh, at the museum in the south of uh, Norway it's a huge sound installation which is taking information input from uh, weather uh, measurements. So there is a sensor station measuring wind and temperature and humidity and, and light, which is feeding into the uh, computer there, which is playing back a selection of uh, possibilities consisting of more than 2,000 sounds that I have collected from the surroundings. The, the installation is called To the Surface, it's one of the most uh, like hidden artworks uh, on a big scale that I know, I think, that I've been uh, collaborating with. And it's, uh, it's really amazing. So if you go there, you have to experience it. It's impossible to make a documentation of it. And, and will that exist for a long time? Because it'd be interesting to see the, if, if you like, the weather measurements in light of climate challenges, which I know you're passionately activist about, you know, will this this uh, this data collection get, happen over a long period of time? It's uh, set up for infinity, so um, that oh, is wow. the plan, yes. Yeah. Of course, the, uh, the sound banks, they are uh, the same. They, I'm mm -hmm. not changing the sounds, but the way the sounds are being manipulated and put in order, that will change according to the weather. 
You were born in Trondheim, weren't you? Quite far north. Yeah. And is your Norwegian identity important to you? And how does that manifest in the work you produce? It was not something I was thinking actively about during my studies when I was uh, looking at Europe and uh, trying to update myself on the European contemporary scene and also after a while the American scene and Asian scene, which mm-hmm. I've been visiting a lot. Uh, right. The last years I uh, felt uh, more the need of uh, of finding my roots. <laughs> I think this is something that comes with age, <laughs> a very natural thing. <laughs> more interest in that and uh, looking at... Uh, uh, my own Norwegian background, also trying to you know, find links to my own history and family history to see like where I'm coming from and uh, somewhere in that. I am, I'm not sure if uh, my music can say decide to be a part of it. Some would say that, uh, I mean, people like you would say that you can hear if a piece is from Scandinavia. But uh, mm, yeah. being from Scandinavia myself, I'm not really sure. <laughs> But uh, I must say that I'm very, uh, I'm also a very uh, uh, active uh, nature hiker <laughs> in Norway. <laughs> so each vacation I go uh, hiking with my family in the mountains or skiing or uh, on like small expeditions. So of course this becomes a part of me, which is again a part of how I compose. So, but I can't put the finger on like a direct link on how that is connected to the music. I'm not afraid of like I'm not afraid of this big contrast. Maybe there is yeah. some, some connection to in it because mm. of that. But you see inspiration in the forms and the changes in nature. You 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 talked a couple of times about collaborations that you've been involved in. How how do you choose who to collaborate with? And sometimes you you are the initiative taker, but uh, many times that. You are introduced to someone and uh, yeah, proposed to be a part of a project and then you have to trust your intuition if this is something that you want to do or not because it means that you will spend a long time working with something and if it's not the right people to work with then, <laughs> then it's uh, complicated. Uh, I get better and better at it, I feel. Then the last collaboration I'm doing now is with two artists from uh, Greece it's a, it's a foundation there that is in collaboration with Norway. It's the Onassis Foundation. And they oh, yeah. asked, they invited me to collaborate with two visual artists that um, have artists named Hyperkumpf. So they work with video and installation art and a lot of interesting stuff. So now we're making a, a concert installation for this Ultima Festival, which will be premiered on September 16th. I'm in the middle of that right now. Mm. So I'm working with that and making all the music for it. Uh, it will be a, a one-hour experience with video. We are recreating the story of the Greek seafarer Piteos, who went up to the north to Norway and he wrote a book about it called On the Ocean, which was destroyed in the fire of Alexandria. But it's referred to in other sources. So we know that it's real. And he mentioned... Uh, the place Ultima Thule as the furthest north he could come. And I think the Ultima Festival has taken its name after that, actually. So this suits very well. 
but we are not sure where Ultima Thule is. Some would say it's on Greenland, but uh, most um, um, yeah, most people uh, look at Norway as the point where it is. It's an island outside of Trondheim. So we have filmed a lot of things from from the seafaring from Athens to, to Norway. And we're using that as a recreation of Piteas travels. But now it's happening on a cruise line ship. Which the ship is called On the Ocean and the cruise line is called Piteas Travels. <laughs> and we have musicians on the ship and I'm writing for them. And we see the film is passing by us. As if it is uh, uh, the windows, so it's round windows on the stage, and the film is passing by, so the ship is moving. So you see, it's always moving from from uh, from right to left on the screen behind you, and it goes into things that are completely surreal, and it's mixing history with the with the, this contemporary life. That sounds fascinating. Well, please come. It will be great. I've never heard of that. That. Um... Those travels, so they, they must have come out of the Mediterranean and gone up Spain and France, yeah, past England. And then, wow, what an adventure. And when he came back to, to Greece, nobody believed him. He was uh, explaining about uh, ice on the fjord and snow and all that, and they didn't and they, believe it. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't have seen that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what sort of score are you writing for? Is that a purely electronic score? Is it improvised every night? Is it set? How is this going to... What's the music that's going to accompany this amazing visual? Oh, look! There it is! What's <laughs> <laughs> on pages? Yeah. Oh, this, is, uh, this is a part of it. Oh, it's so much music to write. I'm really stressed about it now. I'm working uh, no. all the time. Um, it's partly... Um, Played live and partly pre-recorded. Mm-hmm. It's a mix of field recordings and uh, and musicians' recordings, and it's also um, voices actors. So there's also a script. You hear the voice of Piteas himself. Also, you don't see him on stage. It's only the musicians on stage, but you hear his voice. It's like you're in his head and he's uh, thinking back in time and is uh, uh, commenting on what we meet on the boat along the way. I. I think that sounds amazing. And another trip to Norway. Maybe you can go on the boat. Um, no, I read your biography a while ago and I thought, hang on a minute. So tell us about Decibel because apparently it requires the world's largest mobile horn speaker system. And that sounds like my kind of piece. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, the, the Decibel is, is that horn. It is ah. that one. <laughs> okay. So that was uh, also a collaboration with the artist, and it was made as a protest for uh, dumping mine waste in the fjord in the, in w- the west part of Norway. And they're oh. still uh, arguing about this. It's not decided completely yet, but uh, it's a lot of demonstration. Norway is uh, one of the last countries that allow uh, mine waste being dumped into fjords, and it's going to kill mm. the nature and mm. under in the sea there it's really horrible but decibel was uh yeah it's another sound insulation which and when we worked on it uh, it um, uh, it uses uh, the sound of a trombone but i put it on all the resonant frequencies in the horn in order to have it as loud as possible so we could send the message across the fjord and echo in uh, in the mountains on the other sides and, and it worked how big is it Oh, I don't remember how many meters it is. <laughs> if you Google it, you can see this. Yeah, I will. Burn. 
Hmm. Amazing. I see. So the actual horn is called decibel and this whole thing, you're diffusing sound through it and broadcasting. Yes, it is. But Amazing. later on, um, there's my my music was uh, sort of disconnected to the horn afterwards. And uh, there's been other composers who also uh, made music for it later on. Oh, but uh, then the horn is called decibel. <laughs> also. So it's a bit <laughs> confusing. And now I, lately I released uh, the music that I made for it uh, as a compilation or on the compilation that was initiated by some Polish uh, friends of mine that wanted to support uh, the border project uh, to Belarus, the refugees mm. on the border project. And I thought we could use that again. It can be yeah. another another uh, meaningful uh, thing to put the music in. So I never thought the music could stand on alone without the horn, but I think it can when I listen to it again. Mm. It's very important for music to relate to these challenges that we are facing as a, a society and in terms of politics. And I was listening to your um, album, uh, Politic and Morale. Mm, with Poing. Mm. Yeah, what is, but who is Poing? And Capital and Morale is the title of it. We would mm. use the same title uh, in German and Norwegian. Uh, Poing is a trio consisting of uh, Frode Haltli again on accordion and Håkon Tillin on double bass and Rolf-Erik Nyström on saxophones. Mm. They play mostly contemporary music, but we have a project together where I'm featured as a vocalist together with them, mm-hmm. where we um, uh, interpret uh, working class uh, songs through history. It started with the uh, with, um, uh, period around Brecht and Weil and yeah. Iceland, but then it has expanded in all directions, so we mixed mix in Norwegian working class songs and also uh, some uh, contemporary stuff that we find uh, like suiting to the theme. So we do this uh, program every year around 1st of May. So again, ah. yeah, like something well, to come back to, but we have done it since 2000. So, so it was natural to uh, to record uh, some of this also. So we have two records with the material from that. Yeah, and you, everything you is work. just arranged by ourselves and it's not even written down again. So we just make our own arrangements on the spot. So you, you did a version of Working Class Hero, is that right? Yeah, yeah. The, the mm. Lennon song and, yeah. and there's a Tom Waits song that I recognised, yeah. But that's what, what very do you like fun. do best, performing or writing? I need both. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say which I like best. Uh, you can, of course, say that the immediacy of performing uh, and, it, and the applause and the... And the adrenaline and all that, that is uh, perhaps like more uh, rewarding in the instant. But uh, composing is uh, is like the fundament of everything I do as an artist. Mm. So it's much deeper and much more meaningful also, even though I say it's not, I feel it's not about me then. It's more about the work and how the work interacts with the world, and which is uh, very good not to have all this focus as you as a person and, it's quite demanding now because uh, if you want to be visible in in the world of artisan, there's so much uh, focus on the person. Mm. Yeah. I often see that that uh, performing me is uh, in competition with the composing me, and it's uh, always taking the longest draw <laughs> when it gets attention. <laughs> Do you have a favorite piece that you've record that you've written for um, uh, for for others? Oh, it's really hard to choose uh, among your children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My babies, yeah. <laughs> there are some more important works, of course. I, 
if you look at the catalog of um, what is on um, Wise Music mm. and Edition Willem Hansen, which is my publisher, then you would probably see the most uh, important works there. I really like pictures from a sinking city. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's such a wonderful piece. And it's, you know, when you think that this is streamed, Symphonietta size and the, the scale of the sound and the delicacy as well within the piece, as well as this fortitude. It's a beautiful work. And anybody listening, I would suggest that you have a listen to that. Say it again. Uh, Say its title again, Jill. Pictures from a Sinking City. Oh, good title. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Really enjoy that. So, Maya, it's been a wonderful, real privilege to talk to you, especially in the middle of this stressful composition. Um, what are you looking forward to? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so much in the moment right now when I'm <laughs> composing so much. I'm looking forward to... Uh, to uh, hiking with my kids again this summer we have a week <laughs> I a lot to look forward to and uh, this weekend playing with the folk music band mm. as an amateur folk music playing it's so fun <laughs> it takes the edge of all the prestigious uh, things it's yeah. good I, I look I forward to everything <laughs> and I suppose you're getting light nights coming up yeah Oh, we have really uh, light nights already. It doesn't get entirely dark. I don't live in the in the north where the sun is always up, but uh, mm -hmm. it's barely down the horizon, so it's still light. In the yeah, night. fantastic. Very inspiring. I remember going to being in Helsinki on a white night, and it was just fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, we won't keep you any longer. It's what a treat to see you, and uh, good luck with. Um, the installation, the new piece at Ultima and everything else you're working on. And uh, I hope to be in the same room as you and it at some point. Please say hello if you ever happen to be. Absolutely. Pleasure to speak with you. episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening.